0: Oh, Coop, uh, about the uniform. Yes, Albert. Replacing the quiet elegance of the dark suit and tie with the casual indifference of these muted earth tones.
1: It's a form of fashion suicide, but uh, call me crazy. On you it works. Hello there, welcome to A Damn Fine Podcast, the show that's revisiting, re-watching, and preparing... There's a re-in preparing, so it still fits for the return of Twin Peaks to television on May 21st on Showtime. I'm Tom Merritt, and with me, of course, is Ron Richards. Hello, Tom. How you doing? I am excited today uh, because we have a guest joining us who probably should be hosting this show instead of us. Uh, John Thorne is the co-creator of Wrapped in Plastic, uh, the magazine that devoted itself to the study of Twin Peaks, and the author of the essential book that if you have not read or picked up, you absolutely must. It's called The Essential, Wrapped in Plastic, Pathways to Twin Peaks. John Thorne, thanks for joining us.
2: Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's funny because uh, when we were when we started doing this podcast, we said that you know we'd want to have some guests on, we get some different voices, and I, and you know Tom and I have some friends who are into Twin Peaks, and so that's you know kind of relatively easy. But I was like, you know, it'd be great to get like a, as close to an expert as possible. And I was like, you know, <laughs> I'm just gonna i gonna email John Thorne and see what he says. And sure enough, he responded and accepted our invitation. So we're honored. <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> oh,
2: well, well, uh, thank you very much. It's always fun to talk about Twin Peaks with anyone. So uh, anytime.
1: <laughs> I, and I'm not even joking. And when we do this show because Ron and I enjoy talking about it, we think you guys kind of like the water cooler behavior, uh, or the water cooler feel that you get from the show. But if you really want to dig into the episodes, John, you did a great job, uh, putting together wrapped in plastic.
2: Uh, well, thank you. And I do of course always say that, uh, half the credit or more Uh, belongs to craig miller who was my partner in that endeavor uh sadly of course craig passed away uh, a few years ago and uh it's really a shame because he's not here to see all the great news we're we're getting but um he he was a driving force uh behind that magazine and um uh you know i i was there too but uh, i certainly was a um a partnership so credit to him
0: well, I'm sure I'm sure he's up there with with uh, with Albert and with Pete and with all and Doc yeah, Hayward yeah. and all the you know everyone <laughs> yes. who's moved yes. on to the That's next exactly lodge, right. Right? Yeah, um, right, so, right. So, so tell us, how, you know, how did you get in? How did you get pulled into wrapped in plastic? Like, what? What? Tell us about your you know your experience with Twin Peaks from the beginning to the to the point of you know work on a magazine about it.
2: Uh, sure. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll make it quick because you know I'm, I'm sure people have, have heard me heard this story before, but I mean, uh, yeah, I. I I've always been a fan of television, uh, uh, and you know, I always thought television had great potential, and back in the 80s, it, you know, it was uh, almost realizing its potential, but um, it just never seemed to, to do what I thought it could do. And then Twin Peaks came along, and it seemed to really be capitalizing on, on that medium, you know, telling a, a long, complicated story with a lot of characters. And so that's what, that's the thing that got me into it, uh, that, that we were seeing television used the right way. And then of course, once I got into it, uh, it, you know, it was just a fascinating show with incredible amount of, of talent behind it. And, uh, so I was just, just became like a super fan from the beginning, uh, and making, uh, you know, character charts that showed who was related to whom and and making trivia games and and all this kind of stuff and and spreading and giving it out for free to people and uh craig miller uh got a hold of some of that saw what i was doing he approached me at a comic book convention where i was on a panel and said let's do a magazine Uh, that was in 1992 uh right after no it was 1991, uh right before firewalk with me right after the series and uh we did. About a year later, we did it. We started putting out the magazine, and we put out an issue every two months, um, 75 issues. It was 13 years of wrapped in plastic.
0: Wow. Well, And, and you also worked in publishing, and you mentioned you, you got approached at a comic book convention. You also did a magazine about Cerebus, right? Uh, yes, in fact, we did that
2: later. Uh, it turned out Craig was a huge fan of the comic book Cerebus by Dave Sim, and I was too, and uh, we we wanted to do something uh, with that, and we did a, for we did one, and then we actually did another one, and uh, it you know didn't quite have the same. Uh, success is wrapped in plastic, but it was still an interesting. Endeavor. Well,
0: yeah, I feel I feel like cerevis is is, a, is an um, is an emotional uh, kin to Twin Peaks, <laughs> at least in terms of cult like status. I, I I know Dave Sim from my, I was I was I, I work in comics. I do a comics podcast, oh. and, and I used to work at nice. uh, in publishing. Yeah, so when I saw that, I was like, oh, nice. We, we John, you and I are probably very simpatico in a lot of things, so that's great. <laughs> yeah,
2: I think probably that, that's very interesting. And Craig uh, Miller knew Dave Sim uh, better than I, and was always in contact with him, and. Uh, Uh, They had a fairly good relationship. And uh, Dave Sim, I'll just say this real quick. I don't want to spend time on service. But the interesting thing about doing following service magazine was that we had almost too much contact with the primary creator, who was Dave Sim, (laughs) which was the exact opposite of what it was like for doing Wrapped in Plastic, where we had practically zero cooperation from (laughs) David Lynch. And um, I will tell you that it's a little more freeing to have zero cooperation <laughs> than it is <laughs> to have a lot of cooperation because um, the creator is the last word. And um, in some ways, we're all very lucky that da- David Lynch and Mark Frost sort of allow us all to go and explore Twin Peaks on our own way. Um, I think it makes it almost a a better experience because we we have that freedom to take any bend in the path we want when we explore that show.
1: Yeah, nobody looking over your shoulder telling you where you have to go.
2: (laughs) Yeah, well, or telling you you're wrong. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's a, it's a whole different experience. So. Well,
0: yeah, and that was that was kind of one of the things I was curious about. That in, you know, in the 13 years of doing the magazine, how much you know interaction with not only, I mean, I imagine you mentioned very little with David Lynch, but with other members of the cast and things like that. Like, how close to the production were you able to get over those years?
2: Um, with some people, uh, quite a bit, and with others, not so much. And and it, part of that had to do with the timing, being in the 90s uh, for you know most of the magazine uh, a lot of the big actors in twin peaks were were distancing themselves from the show to some extent because they rightly wanted to you know move on with their career and didn't want to get stuck in the past and so it it, it was sometimes difficult to get interviews with those folks um that changed i think in you know around the, about 10 years ago or more i think people the, some of the members of the cast began to embrace it again and talk more about it but so that made it a little tricky uh, but that being said, we had a lot of support from Mark Frost. A lot of support. He was uh, a, really a good friend of the magazine, and we interviewed him five or six times. Uh, Catherine Coulson uh, was a huge supporter of the magazine. Extremely friendly, very personable, very supportive. She would mention it in other interviews that she'd do. <laughs> so we were we were lucky to have. And she had you know she had the ear of David Lynch, which was nice. And and we ended up speaking with david lynch twice we had two interviews with him in the magazine which uh just you know getting one was a huge uh accomplishment but to get a second one it it felt like he at least um uh was uh, giving us sort of tacit approval
0: for what we were doing yeah that's like pouring love on you that had that much attention from him it was that was great really was (laughs) And, and was he was he easy to talk to or was he difficult
2: Uh, We were prepared, you know, I mean, I study, I have studied David Lynch a great deal, uh, all his works, and uh, read so many interviews with him that we knew going in that he was hesitant to talk about his work, and certainly when you get into you know the nitty gritty, you know, we always joked that the, the ideal interview was to ask David Lynch about why he doesn't like interviews. Uh, <laughs> but we 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 didn't quite get there. But um, yeah, he was tricky, and he even said to us, uh, I think at least once, maybe more. I'm not going to talk about that. He was very direct. I'm not going uh-huh. to say I'm not going to talk about it. And you know, we were like, oh no, that's okay. <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't worry. We didn't want to we didn't want to make him uncomfortable. Uh, but. Uh, you know once we got talking about, particularly when he's talked about casting people and talking about working with actors, he was quite open and, and and gave us a lot of good good information. So that was a lot of fun.
1: I mean, objectively speaking, Twin Peaks has a lot more enthusiasm than a lot of other properties out there. Just just the fact alone that you could do Wrapped in Plastic for 13 years starting after the show went off the air. Uh, the fact that it's got enough interest to bring it back to Showtime 25 years later plus. Uh, what, what, in your opinion, being as close to it as you have been over the years, is are some of the things, and I know there's not just one thing, <laughs> that cause it to, to kind of keep that aficionado status to keep that love.
2: Uh, wow, uh, I don't think I can say it all in the time yeah, sure. we have. It's I mean, called, it's complicated. The book is called Rapid Plastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um. Uh. It's it, there's so, there's there's so many different reasons why I think for one thing obviously the show. Uh, when it came on at the time, of course, was very different. It had a cinematic feel, and it seemed to be asking a lot more of the audience. So I think that core audience that started with it uh, embraced it because it was um, what we were looking for in many respects. Um, But, you know, um, Lynch, of course, David Lynch is the kind of person who adds so many layers and thematic content to, and Mark Frost, too. I I never want to diminish the uh, contribution of Mark Frost the two of them together, you know, it started adding in um, so much that you could explore. There was there were themes of duality, of course. There was circularity in the narrative. There was, uh, you know, various ways you could you could interpret things, and there was ambiguity. So it allowed you to allowed you to come up with theories that that um, might explain certain elements of the of the story. I think that had a great appeal to. Uh, Craig used to say, you know, the the fan base for uh, Twin Peaks was an inch wide but a mile deep, yeah. meaning there weren't a lot of people out there. But those people who were there were willing to kind of devote themselves to the show, and uh, I, I think they've never stopped. And I think the other thing I've said this too before is that. Um, uh, Another generation has been able to get into Twin Peaks thanks to the streaming services that have made it more easily available. It was very, very difficult to get yes. into Twin Peaks. Uh, if you hadn't seen it from the beginning, getting it on, on a home medium, you know, in a uh, visual medium in the 90s was, you couldn't get the pilot or you had mm-hmm. to get the videotapes or there was laser, you know, it was just it was really tough for people to get, to, to, to come to it new. And that has changed. Uh, people can come to it now. Younger people stream it and can watch it on a computer, and that has really allowed for uh, the show to find a new audience. So, um, that uh, I think that's that's been another reason why there's been a um, uh, a return, you know, of, of interest to the show.
1: Right. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, two weeks ago we had Rob Reed on who hasn't finished watching it for the first time. Yet, yeah, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Which is which is crazy uh, to that, that that could happen.
0: Well, yeah, and I and I think I think also what I think is interesting to the some of the points that you're making, John, is that Twin Peaks fell. And, and you know, to, to give you some background on us, uh, John, Tom, and I both work in yeah. t- we work in tech and media and things like that. So we're very kind of focused on communication and, and entertainment and all these you know kind of ways entertainment is delivered. But Twin, Pe- Twin Peaks fell in a time before the internet, before email you know even though you had you did have the rabbit yes. loyal news group following on yeah you know, we'll using yeah. Yeah, that u- yeah, yeah. folks right um so it hit then and then it uh, and then you know things like your magazine allowed that fandom to continue amongst that inch long, inch wide mile deep long audience um until it ca- technology was able to get to a point where it could be spread you know as, as it is today i think that's i think the arc of twin peak fandom from 25 years ago to now is just one of the more unique and fascinating in the terms of a lot of the genre uh properties that are out there there.
2: Absolutely. It's it's so true. It's it's a fascinating thing to look at about how you know how hard it was to watch Twin Peaks in the nineties and yeah. how it did. You make a great point. It came on before the internet and, and it was only a year or two later that the X-Files came on. And the X-Files is one of those shows maybe the first show that really capitalized on the uh, you know the, the growing internet um, uh, culture because as you, you may recall I mean there was one episode of the X-Files where they had a list of, of names that were actually uh, you know, people who were posting to the X Files news mm-hmm. groups and, and that, and and they capitalized on the internet. And I've always thought, if Twin Peaks had come on maybe a year and a half later, would it would things have been different? Would the internet, as it was just blossoming at that time, I mean, Twin Peaks just missed the window. Yeah had had it come yep. on a little later, what would have happened? Would it have continued? And it it, it maybe because there would have been more enthusiasm, at least easier to communicate about it. Yeah. and I and, don't know. And it's fun also to think
0: about yeah. And <laughs> also, if it came out at a time when when like packaging seasons of TV shows and things like that, which became such a cottage industry in the late nineties, early two thousand, with DVDs and things like that, you know. But all the rice issues with the pilot and things like that; those weren't uh, you, you know yeah. the the distribution yeah. that we got became used to in the early two thousands didn't exist when Twin Peaks was around. So that's why you had that mess, yeah. and no nobody wanted to lug around that big wide VHS box set of every exactly. of all those tapes. Right. Right?
2: right. Accessibility to Twin Peaks in the late nineties. Was I mean that was just really a barrier,
0: yeah.
2: and, uh, and and that changed. And yeah. I think that has a lot to do with, you know, with why the show is is coming back. I think that, you know there's been a surge in interest in in a younger viewership.
0: So so now with with Twin Peaks returning in May. Uh, are we just another, or you have a very are you a very busy man at this point? Are you getting hit up by other folks to talk about <laughs> Twin sir?
2: I will tell you that it is a very, very, I'm surprised how busy I am with people, uh, uh, you know, contacting me. I will tell you I had a, kind of a disappointment today. I don't know when this is going to come out, but today, uh, you know, all the entertainment weekly stuff came out, yep. uh, the, uh, uh, Jeff Jensen, the entertainment weekly critic, uh, interviewed me for about 20 minutes for that piece in entertainment weekly. And then he emailed me this morning and said he cut it all out. So, oh. so unfortunately I'm not, in, I don't think I'm in the entertainment weekly. I haven't seen it, but, uh, uh, he said there's going to be an online version that'll be longer and, and there'll be more. Of, of what I had to tell him, hmm. uh, and I understand that I, you know, they got more important people to talk to. But yes, to answer your question briefly, uh, there have been uh, a lot of people emailing me and, and contacting me, and it's an interesting time.
1: Well, good of him to get back to you and at least let you know that. Uh, I thought the same
2: written. thing. I really appreciated yeah. it. I had the heads up before I picked up the issue and yeah. aged through it. So, uh, um,
1: and thank you for, for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to talk oh, with us today as well.
2: Oh, my pleasure, as I said. So I love. We should probably that.
1: get to talking about <laughs> the episode yes. uh, that we want to discuss today, which is, of course, Slaves and Masters. You might know it as... The 15th episode of season two, or tw- the 23rd episode of the series, or its actual title, episode 22.
0: <laughs> yes, right. And yes, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so uh, this episode originally aired on February 9th, 1991. Uh, and it was written by Harley Payton and Robert Engels, the, 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 the standard writing team in season two, uh, familiar names. Um, but one of the, one of the reasons why we were so psyched to have John on for this episode is because this is one of the more notable episodes in season two is it was directed by Diane Keaton in her television directorial debut. Um, now I'll be honest. I don't know how this happened. John, do you know how Diane Keaton got roped into this or? Uh,
2: I'm not exactly sure. And you know I think I used to know, but I've forgotten it. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I know that she also directed an episode of China Beach, I think, uh, that was on uh, ABC television, the same scheduled the same night, Saturdays with Twin Peaks. And she had some got some sort of deal where she was able to direct a few of their you know, um, elite shows, if you want to call them that. Uh, and so that was part of a deal. She directed another – if it's not China
0: Beach, it was she, another you, show. I think it was are, China Beach. You are correct, yes. It was right. the episode called right. Fever of China Beach that aired in 1990. So I was wrong. This is not her directorial debut. I read something that said it was. But, uh, yeah, so she directed a couple of – she directed China Beach and Twin Peaks in 91. <laughs> and then um, she did a TV movie in 91. And then she only directed, again, in 95, 2000, and 2001, and that's it. So not much directing for okay. Matt Keaton. So. Um, Yeah, it may
2: have been some deal where she was just trying to, you know, she directed those and maybe it was a pathway to something else that she wanted to do. I don't know all the details, (laughs) but yeah.
0: so even though, despite the the celebrity director uh, in the ratings, uh, Twin Peaks only got 8.2 million viewers that night, uh, still coming in uh, behind Carol and Company, which is holding strong with 20 million viewers on Saturday night at 10 a, 10 p.m. Um, we, uh, we, yeah, we, and we, we like to track the progress of Twin Peaks versus Carol and Company. So uh, <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I know it's good. It's good to know all those numbers. Well, right. it's
0: probably going to be our follow up rewatch
1: mm-hmm. podcast. Will yeah. be the Carol and Company rewatch. So. It's,
2: it's a great yeah, idea. Well, on.
1: Good luck with that. Thanks. Appreciate that. (laughs) Uh, So we start off this episode. uh, Ron, is is there anything else, any other facts and figures before we get started? That's all the info I got for you. Yep. Uh, we start up this episode with a signature Diane Keaton move. I'm going to say because this is the first we're seeing over here, but <laughs> but it is definitely a directorial move. We're not seeing characters, and we spend quite a bit of time uh, in extreme close up on some chess pieces with some horror music and gl- gliding through the board until we end up on the king.
0: It's it's quite a it's quite a stylized approach to start the episode right you know and and with chess playing such a big role with Wendy Merlin Cooper it gives i guess i feel like it gave me a theme for this uh, for for what to expect of this episode
1: uh, then we move very quickly into the Evelyn Marsh story and this is where i i actually like john that that you called this the last episode of the se- second season slump and i feel like this this plot line is particularly uh, yeah, emblematic yeah. of that and and honestly If we're going to have anyone close it up, having Diane Keaton closed it up made it a much better close up. I feel like the Marsh, the Evelyn story line was never better than it was in this episode.
0: Agreed. In fact, in fact, going through the various Evelyn Marsh uh, scenes made me really wonder that, wow, could something of good have been made of this storyline? Because if you just saw this kind of glimpse of it, it's like, oh, okay. I'd want to see more of this. So we we cut from the uh, slow-mo
1: chess pieces to the fishnet stockings of Evelyn Marsh, uh, slowly coming up to reveal Evelyn being asked about James uh, by a law enforcement officer. Uh, Malcolm is talking, calling James a drifter, uh, lies about how they met, uh, does talk about the Jaguar breaking down uh, by Wally's, and then we get gladdered. Uh, by realizing there's not just one sheriff's deputy here but three of them (laughs) marching out in step which becomes another signature move of this episode
2: i mean yes i mean that's just the beginning you start to see some of these uh a very noticeable stylistic touches uh that she that diane keaton brings uh to uh the to the episode throughout and that i think that one is i think that's the first one obviously the pan up and the you know, and the veil that's over, uh, Evelyn Marsh's head. It's all very, and the pan through the, through the chess pieces, uh, but when we get into the actual narrative itself, and we're there, suddenly we get this this thing. It it it, it, it certainly makes you take note.
0: It's it's definitely it's definitely this episode looks is was jarring in in comparison to the other previous episodes. In that we go back to a director who actually cares about cinematography and the shots. Where up to this point, the last three or four episodes have been very by the book TV drama, you know, kind of camera pacing. Uh, so for, on one hand, it's a bit of a, uh, a breath of fresh air for me, but on the other hand, I get, a, I, I'm going to get a little critical about it, but I'll wait, I'll wait on those comments. So no, yeah. no,
2: no, no, no. There's <laughs> a lot of interesting things to talk about this episode and, and I don't want to interrupt your flow real quick. I will just quickly just interject that, um, I think people who watched it when it first aired have a different opinion of people who watched it later, especially if they binge watched it. We can Definitely. talk about that if you want, um, you know, when we, when we get to that point.
1: Uh, Well, Malcolm gets a little pushy with Evelyn, who just wants this over with. He tries to kiss her. She fends him off and and runs upstairs. And we're off to Wally's. So we're still on the Marsh storyline at the beginning of this episode. Uh, A row of of what appear to be bus drivers is at the bar, all smoking cigars. Opera music is playing. It's a much more interesting Wally's already than it has ever been before. Uh, And really, this episode is Donna trying to tell James he needs help. Uh, while they keep getting interrupted by a waiter and, uh, and, and she's, she's trying to convince, uh, James, uh, that, that he should call back. He should call Ed. Uh, they have to stay ahead of the cops. Uh, James says Evelyn wouldn't listen to him. And Donna starts to realize, ah, James has it bad for Evelyn. (laughs) And then we, we finish up with Donna at the payphone talking to Ed, uh, and then having to change the conversation as one of those sheriff's deputies shows up who right, walks right past James to the bar, uh, <laughs> says, excuse me. And all the bus drivers turn at once and all in unison say,
0: hi, Frank. <laughs> and and th- for this, this is the the, the the shot of all the bus drivers made me go, oh, she's trying to be David Lynch.
2: Uh, yes, I think, and that, that's a good point to make. I mean, some of these stylistic touches are almost too much, yes. and it's almost like there's, you almost she's trying too hard to bring what she thinks is a Twin Peaks sensibility to the show. And uh, while I, well, we'll get into it maybe a little later. Um, I appreciate the effort, that for sure. Uh, but um, watching it again, and it's been a long time since I, I watched it last night. Um, it, it almost stood out too much. It was too like look at me, look at me. That's the yeah. thing. That, I
0: did. Yeah, I think my complaint about Twin Peaks is, is Twin Peaks is at its can be at its worst when it's trying to be two Twin Peaks. You know, like, yeah. like, like when, mm-hmm. when you've got you've got directors or writers who are like I can be Twin Peaker more than David Lynch and, and this is what we end up with. But that said, I liked right. it. I, I did like a lot of the blocking and the movement, like Donna and James. Yeah. Had they start their conversation and then they move away from the bar and they move to a corner of the bar and like, and the mm-hmm. weird kind of pacing of this, it definitely, you know, I like that because it felt way more alive than previous other episodes, but yes. still. If, excellent. if it had just yeah. been
1: the waiter interrupting, that would have been a cool twin peaks kind of, you know, gambit. Right. Uh, but the bus drivers following the, the walking in step sheriffs and that it just, it starts to feel like it's just maybe one thing too many, maybe, maybe two bus drivers at the, the bar, rather well, than and
0: I'll, t- I'll tell you, I'll tell you where Diane Keaton missed the boat was that with the interrupting bartender is that she blew the rule of threes because it only happened twice. If it ah. had, if it had happened one more time, it would have been great. <laughs> Two times is off-putting and weird. Third time, hysterical. It's the rule of threes. Yeah, so that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, bu- the the bus driver's turning uh, is is there for a
2: comedy. Um, there really is no other reason. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's it's unusual, but it's comedy. And I noticed again that a lot of these touches. Uh, are done and they uh, you can't really see them any other way as trying to be funny and when you try to be funny too hard you're not funny anymore yeah so um uh, that that stuck out to me last night when i watched it again too i I will say the high
1: frank still makes me laugh though (laughs)
2: <laughs> um there's some of it works but some of it goes just a little too far yeah, yeah, I think yeah. but anyway on to uh
1: the sheriff's office uh where we get a really cool shot uh shooting through the chess pieces that are on the conference room table towards uh Cooper and Truman who are talking to Bobby and Shelley about Leo's disappearance uh Cooper asks about the night the mill burned uh because as Cooper's always played the heavy uh with Bobby and he's not stopping now Bobby just comes out and says it was Hank that shot Leo Ah, uh, Truman decides to assign deputies to protect Shelley. Bobby doesn't like it, but Shelley's fine with it. Uh, she would like to have this. As Bobby leaves, we see Albert come in, yes. and Truman and Albert have a big hug. This is a great moment.
0: <laughs> I don't think I don't think anything made me smile more than the the greeting between Albert and Truman, who went once were at fisticuffs and now hugging as if they have been brothers, long lost brothers for years.
1: And of course, Albert is there. The way we get Albert back is that he's not doing forensics. He's assigned to investigate Wyndham Earle because gordon cole is worried about coop which uh uh, miguel ferrer does in his best david lynch imitation (laughs) uh earl has been sending fake mail bombs to police departments from illinois to mississippi each of them have a different article of wedding clothes in them and the map that shows where the packages were found wasn't made by albert it was taped to the bottom of a table at the power station that blew the other night uh and then Albert looks at Cooper's dress and says, the new uniform is fashion suicide, but somehow on Cooper it works.
0: Is <laughs> it just me or is Miguel Ferrer way more animated in this episode throughout, in every scene he's in? I I, know,
2: I noticed that, too. I, I thought that he seemed a, bit, a little bit, uh, and that's probably the directing. You know, that was probably, dang, he'd take it up a notch. Um, it almost has a calm rhythm to it. Boom, 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 boom. Uh, it, it, it doesn't. But you can almost see that. I will just say about that, I thought Miguel Ferrer was a standout in this episode. Uh, even though he was a little over the top, he still was one of the, stand- the standouts. I thought Dana Ashbrook in this scene was also extremely good. Uh, I really liked the way he was playing with his character. And I liked that kind of uh, Bobby. Yeah,
0: it was a reminder of Bobby in the be- very beginning of the show, which mm-hmm. I feel like faded away as he got ground into the Leo story arc. Um, but yeah, I agree with you. And I... And I like the I like the, you know, uh, Albert, as he often does, bringing the various clues and the things like that, you know, with the update in Windermere. And I like how they don't acknowledge the fact that the map uh, of all the locations that Windermere send bombs to spells out a C on the on the map, but they never acknowledge it. You know? <laughs> so and is that is that meant to be a C for Cooper or C for Catherine? Ah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carolyn. Carolyn, sorry, Carolyn, yes,
1: yeah. Uh, so we move on to Wyndham Earl's cabin uh, with a close-up of gears spinning and Earl playing the flute and dancing in his underwear, <laughs> sitting on a rock in the middle of the cabin <laughs> as Leo wakes up. Uh, and then we get a recap of all of Leo's offenses, Wyndham showing off how much he knows. He uh, Leo tries to get up and Earl hits him with the flute and knocks him out because it's not just a wood instrument, it's also a weapon. <laughs> Earl wants Leo to help him and obey him uh, puts a shock collar around Leo's neck, so he really is just treating him like a pet, uh, not even a, a beloved pet, but but like a uh, like like a, a a draft horse, like an animal. Leo stands up, and Earl presses a button on his pla- bracelet to shock him as, as the training begins. And then he goes to the stove and gets some gruel and force feeds Leo.
0: And and the, now we see the uh, the inspiration for the German title of Slaves and Masters. Ah
1: yes, this one was fairly obvious this time.
0: <laughs> T- taking taking a little slightly S and M kind of uh, angle to it, if you want to go in that direction. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. I like I like the I like the interplay between Windermere and Leo throughout the whole episode, though the the you know the the genius of Windermere and the and the simpletonness of Leo. It's a nice kind of uh, a ba- uh, balance that that starts in this episode really well.
2: And it's interesting too for what little Eric DeRay has to do. He's not really. You no know, dialogue. He really does great performance there of, of of convincing you that he is in terrible pain. And he's really being tortured.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I I wonder sometimes if Eric DeRay isn't best when he's not allowed to speak. And I I don't mean that as a criticism. Like he he is amazing as as the paralyzed Leo. That is a tough role to pull off. Uh, And and make in any way interesting. And he does. Uh, And then here he is again. You know, he's allowed to speak a little more now, but um, it's 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 pretty good. And and it shows Leo going from being a threat to being nothing to being a threat to being nothing again.
2: Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, one other quick point on this scene uh, I, it was Kenneth Welsh playing Wyndham Earl who introduced the idea of the uh, shakuhachi flute that uh, Wyndham Earl was playing and that was uh, a oh, contribution really? by Welsh he actually uh, knew how to play it uh, he actually played the little tune um, I, there's some I forget the exact story but he, he was in contact with Lamente and they, they did a little tune um, what you hear is not actually Welsh but he actually did you know, kind of get the music figured out with that Lamente. And uh, I guess the original script just had a flute in it, but when Merle brought that, I mean, sorry, Kenneth Welsh brought that, mm. that particular nuanced part of the character uh, himself.
0: Yeah. That. yeah. Isn't the, the song, the song is that the, the flute song is a Julie Cruz song, which of course is, you know, you know, collaborated with Angela, Angela but it's a, it ties back to the musical mythos of Twin Peaks uh, directly. Yeah.
2: I, yeah. I, Right, I think Welsh had a, his own tune he wanted to do it. I know he said it didn't work out the way he wanted it in terms of the music, but he, yeah, uh, yeah he was really playing it. Apparently, he was really playing something when they filmed it. Wow. So, uh,
1: it's it, I, and I'm pulling this from from the wrapped in plastic book. Uh, he played his flute over the phone to Angelo Battalamente, right. who immediately went to exactly. the piano on the spot and came back with the music they used in the episode.
2: <laughs> yes, that's that's the story. That's right. Yeah.
1: And all credit to you because that's where I'm getting it. <laughs> oh,
2: well, yeah, thank you. Credit to Kenneth
1: Welsh. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, Kenneth Welsh is the one telling the story. We're remembering exactly. the story. <laughs> yeah. All right, on to Big Ed's, where um, despite the fact that Donna was just on the phone with him, uh, right. he doesn't seem mm-hmm. to remember much about that because, well, it's been twenty years, and he's in bed next to Norma. Um, Norma used the diner uh, to just dis- distract, just uh, dis- to distract her. She says, "For those twenty years, that's that's how she got by." Well, yeah, they're, they're, says, they're
0: in, There's some hardcore pillow talk here, right? They're both. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both. You know, you could tell that they're both topless, and they're laying down in the in the, on the in the pillow. And this is clearly, you know, post you know, kind of, uh, you know, kind of emotional sharing, right? (laughs) Yeah. They're they're talking
1: about uh, Ed says, I turned all my Christmases into a week full of Mondays, and Norma tells a story about chickening out from giving Ed a Christmas present. Now they're talking about the future when, of course, Nadine comes home. And in brilliant Twin Peaks fashion, uh, it doesn't turn into an awkward I caught you situation. Nadine just gets in bed with them uh, and complains about how she was disqualified in the wrestling tournament and only ends ended up with second place and there she is with the trophy she apologizes to norma for hurting hank and then says she knows about ed and norma and it's okay because now she doesn't have to feel bad about her and mike and she says it's really okay as she sort of very firmly twists the trophy in her hands belying maybe just how okay she is
0: I, but again, I think, I, you know, Tom, we're talking a lot about how, you know, like the you know, the the in our rewatch now, 20 years, later, 25 years later, uh, the things that we were liking from the show and not liking from the show. I always loved Big Ed, but I'm loving Big Ed and Norma. And this scene got me all sorts of, you know, emotional, like, oh, they're together and it's going to work and this is going to be great. Well, it's carrying on what we
1: talked about last episode, where we're bringing back these plot lines from, in some cases, season one, but at least season, early season two, that have just kind of been left flat for a while, and we're breathing new life back into them.
2: Yes, this episode is interesting in that way, because not only does it close up those uh, those two big storylines that we'll talk about, uh, but it also reminds us of a couple of uh, sort of forgotten storylines, and one is, you know, and I know we're getting to it, but you know who shot Cooper,
0: yep. and right. uh,
2: you know what w- you know who shot uh, Leo. <laughs> Those things have kind of been forgotten, but they're brought back up again in this episode.
1: But before we do that, let's go to the Great Northern, where Ben is winding up his Civil War story. Uh, this this scene is essentially Audrey, Jerry, Bobby, uh, and 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 Dr. Jacoby helping Ben. Win the Civil War for the South to resolve his insanity, uh, and uh, they end up with Ben and Johnny singing Dixie.
0: <laughs> and I, I know we're t- I know we're towards the end of of the Civil War plotline, and I know some people don't like it. I've loved every moment of Richard Bamer being a Southern general. This is
1: <laughs> the central part of this is Jerry trying to get out of helping Ben. Uh, Jerry says maybe we should just leave him insane. It'd be easier for me to get some stuff done. And Audrey plays the heavy, and says, "Hey, she's the executor of the estate, so he either helps him or she doesn't. He doesn't get anything done."
2: Yeah, that said, yeah, pretty pretty standard fare with these characters interacting with one another. Uh, of course, you know this is one of those plots where they trying to incorporate as many actors as they can to service the large cast. So. Um, uh, you know, we've got Bobby and Dr. Jacoby and Jerry there. It's 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 an interesting dynamic. <laughs>
0: and and before we moved on, Tom, we actually skipped over between Ed and Norma and the Great Northern. We actually got a oh, quick. Oh, crap. Yeah, I've we got, got it's all right. No worries. Yeah, yeah we, went, we, got I, the, we got a quick. My interlude.
1: doc skipped past the Martells bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So we're out of order for a moment here. My apologies. <laughs> uh, at the Martells, Josie, very fidgety, opens the door. It's Truman and Cooper. Uh, and they tell him that Jonas, Jonathan was shot three times. Uh, The Seattle police want to know uh, what's going on. Cooper goes to get some coffee because he can tell that Josie and Truman need a a little time together. And Pete comes in with a bunch of dried cleaning, ranting about the woman at the dry cleaner not speaking English. She speaks Hungarian and he doesn't speak any Hungarian. Uh, The phone rings as Cooper takes the clothes and Pete goes off to answer it. And Cooper realizes there's a couple of Josie's things in here, so he takes some fabric samples and a glove. Uh, the call is from Thomas Eckhart calling Josie, and uh, we get some great shots of, of Thomas and Josie and Catherine listening in on the other line uh, and uh, and 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 understanding what was going on. So she says, "Welcome to Twin Peaks." Eckhart hangs up the phone. And tells a woman in the room with him that Josie has run back to Catherine, to which the woman in the room responds in Afrikaans, I warned you not to trust her.
0: I, I love David Warner as Eckhart. I love David Warner as an actor, and I think he's great as Eckhart. I like the fact <laughs> yeah. that they let
1: them speak Afrikaans in this scene.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, an interesting uh, um, new
2: part of Twin Peaks. It doesn't last very long, but I, I do like the Eckhart character, too. I thought he was mm-hmm. uh, interesting and had even more potential, so.
0: The Africa, I, I wonder the Afrikaans that as a decision, like, let's, let's, you know, like, cause I didn't, I had to look up to see what they, what language they were speaking. Right. And, and yeah, that, that's, that's a really, but it works. I mean, it, it, it
1: implies that, well, it gives them an air of international mystery, right? Yeah, they're, yeah. they're from South Africa. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and, and South Africa was was in a different place back yeah. then. <laughs> All right. Uh, yes. So we then go from the Martells to the Great Northern with our Civil War scene. And then on to Wally's uh, where Evelyn is sitting down at the bar now. And Donna's still there and confronts her about James. Evelyn is very dismissive. And then Malcolm arrives and starts hurrying up Evelyn to go. And then as she's going, he grabs Donna and says if he sees her again, he'll kill her. And Donna yells, "Don't do this to him, please!" And then <laughs> cries.
2: It's a little. It's a little overdone.
0: <laughs> yep.
2: <laughs> I thought it was. It uh, was noticeably overdone. Uh, although I think they were really trying their best to turn Malcolm into one of those sort of Twin Peaks heavies, you know, where he's very physical and he's, he's, you know, uh, threatening. Um, it almost works. Uh, didn't quite.
0: It's funny because I think I think actually one of the later scenes I made this comment, but it applies here. You know, I know earlier I said that that this actually made some of the Evelyn Marsh scenes a little more dramatic, a little more interesting, but except that this scene and a couple other ones start to feel like high school drama class. You know when Donna mm-hmm. just cu- Donna just comes in and, see, and, and is and is over emoting and the screaming like don't do yep. this to him you know and like and the crying like Donna really brings this stuff way down and it's just yeah. kind of embarrassing. Well, and it's
1: it's weird that James isn't here in this scene since yes. the last time we saw them at Wally's it was full of bus drivers and James. It's weird that Evelyn is here. Because we saw her at home, and the next time we see her, she's at home. It's like, it's the only reason we have this scene is so that Malcolm can threaten Donna. Exactly, yep. (laughs) The wind comes through the trees, blowing that plot away for the moment and uh, showing us a superimposed chess piece. It's a knight. Uh, Albert is showing some ficuna coat samples from Josie that match the ones outside his room the night Cooper was shot Uh, Albert says that, uh, this is a match. He's checking the gloves for powder burns. And in Seattle, they're looking for an Asian woman in connection with Jonathan's murder. And they show a police sketch that looks very much like Josie. Albert thinks the bullets from Jonathan's gun will match the bullets taken from Cooper's vest. I'm sorry, not from Jonathan's gun, but the bullets that killed Jonathan will match the bullets taken from Cooper's vest. Uh, and Albert says our sheriff's got a serious problem with his girlfriends, and Coop says not to tell one word to Truman until they're certain.
0: It's nice to see. It's it's nice to see uh, Albert kind of stepping up for uh, for Truman here again, building on you know where they once were rivals. Now you know uh, you know Albert's kind of pointing out to Cooper that you might have a problem, and it's this kind of protection of of each other that they're doing, which I like to see.
2: It's just another example of them kind of rapidly moving this plot to some conclusion.
1: Yeah, we're, we're basically getting uh, a, a reintroduction to a, a mystery that that they had almost let us forget about. Right. And and saying, hey, we all still wonder who shot Cooper. Uh, guess what? Might have been Josie. That's going to make things hard for Truman. You know, let's 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 hurry up and catch up with this plot line, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Down the road.
2: Exactly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Down the hall, Truman is playing darts. Uh, They talk about the fact that they have identified uh, Wyndham Earl's victim. His name was Eric Powell. And it turns out that that's Carolyn's maiden name. And when Earl takes a piece from the board, someone dies. Uh, if only they had a chess expert. And Truman says, guess what? We have one of the best right here in Twin Peaks.
0: <laughs> and, and so th- this just struck me that, like, conveniently now we have chess boards in every room at the sheriff's station. There was one yes. in the conference room. Yeah. There's one in Truman's <laughs> office. <right? It's> just, <laughs> this is an
2: example of, uh, of uh, them trying to find something for the cast to do. And-
1: yeah, you got to keep that cast busy. Uh, so we're all wondering who this chess expert is. We cut to the diner. We see an extra. We see Cooper. We see Doc Hayward all being beaten in chess by, and the reveal is Pete Martel. Pete credits Jose Raul Capablanca uh, for his abilities. Cooper asks for Pete's help. Uh, says he wants to stalemate with le- with losing as few pieces as possible. Note that he doesn't say without losing pieces. He's more <laughs> of a realist. He's familiar with chess. He's like, but we want to keep the death count to a, a low amount. Uh, and then says great players are either far or few and puts down the white king. Uh, and so we're starting to get the symbolism of Cooper being the white pieces and Wyndham being the black pieces,
0: and and kudos to them for uh, re- making the reference to uh, Jose Raul Capablanca, who was a, a real life chess expert, chess chess player, uh, but uh, in the mid 1900s. Uh, uh, so, unknown how Pete, you know, Pete probably read a book that he wrote or referred to him yeah, or something like that. A lot of books there at the Bartels, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no. But to, to John to John's point, this this is clearly screaming giving Pete something to do
2: absolutely i mean yeah they they you know they've got to service the cast and so why not make Pete? it doesn't quite make sense really but uh suddenly uh pete is the chess expert so um so I yeah, guess, there we I, guess are. It, I
0: guess in some sort of, you know, like he see, you know, like he, you underestimate the simple kind yeah. of guy, you know, right. they're playing off that trope. Right. Yeah. so
2: it, Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's what they were trying to do. the most unlikely person to be the chess expert. Yeah. Right there,
0: and I yes. kind of love that. It I so, makes perfect well, sense to me that yeah. Pete would be the chess. expert I, I would watch an entire show just of Pete Martell. So, like, <laughs> it, it's chess. fine. Yes, yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh speaking of moving pieces around the board, the other part of this diner scene is Shelley asking for her job back from Norma while they crouch down behind
0: the counter polishing a big ice cream cone model. <laughs> <laughs> For me that was the, that was my only takeaway was that that's one big ice cream cone. <laughs> and it makes it makes sense it makes sense cuz it's now this is like late March in Twin Peaks timeline so maybe spring is coming Norma wants to start selling ice cream that makes sense. Yeah, sure.
1: it has got to pull it out of the closet.
0: Uh, that is of course
2: the uh, you know that's the famous uh, uh, double R ice cream cone. It's um, uh, you know it's it's visible in the background of quite a few uh scenes. So mm. For whatever reason, I guess Diane Keaton decided, "Okay, we'll give that to Norma to you know clean. Give her some business. <laughs> so yeah. she'll so have something to do, <laughs> right? Right. I like that scene a lot. I think uh, Peggy Lipton does a great job, and I, I like the interaction between uh, Norma and Shelley. I always have, but. It was something that really worked well on that show, and that was a great example of it.
1: Well, the moon comes out, and we move back to the Martells, where Thomas Eckhart has shown up for dinner with Catherine. And, of course, Josie will awkwardly be serving them, uh, struggling to open the wine. And Catherine and Thomas have a sort of I'm-not-saying-what-I-mean conversation about the killing of, of Thomas, Uh, And whether it was for art or money and Thomas says it was for love and then kisses Josie's hand and they talk about what to do for Josie uh, and uh, Catherine says it would be a shame if you left empty handed implying maybe she'll give Josie to him and then Catherine calls for the main course which is of course a roasted pig head.
0: For me the highlight of the episode is both Thomas and Catherine's ridiculous early 90s outfits. Thomas is in a tuxedo that like is uh, way more ornate than it needs to be, and Catherine's in this sparkly gown, and it's just like it's like whoa, they dialed up the formality of this dinner way higher than I thought they would. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting too. I thought
2: that uh, that uh, Piper Laurie uh, did you know did a pretty darn good job with some of the dialogue that they gave her. That you know, if you read that dialogue on the page, it's it's pretty. It's pretty corny, but she does a great job. I think she really uh, somehow brings it up.
0: Well and and yeah. the, the, it kind of goes back to what you said earlier with the with the kind of the pacing of the dialogue uh, with 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 Albert and with Cooper and Truman earlier and then also like even with with Donna and James like it's almost like I, Diane Keaton in her direction is giving a rhythm to the, the, the it's coming fast and you know kind of yeah. almost like a tennis match and it, it it you feel like that and if that if that was what was intended it definitely came across
2: yeah, and it's, it's actually uh, – my wife was watching the show with me last night too. She noticed that there was a lot going on and it was somewhat ton- – sometimes it seems some kind of choppy. And uh, it, in some ways, that's the opposite of the way Lynch would approach uh, yeah. doing Twin Peaks and not speed it up but to slow it down. So um, while it works, uh, it, 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 it doesn't have the same feel that we might normally associate with a, with a really well-done episode.
1: And that that is one of the the things I've noticed in in rewatching and discussing this stretch, this slump stretch of the second season, is that these episodes tend to have a much higher scene count.
2: Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that that's interesting. Um, well, they're, again, they're trying to do a lot of plot with a lot of characters, and they're trying to fit it all into forty-four mm-hmm. minutes. So, um, uh, yeah, it it it's moving, it's moving fast.
1: Well, let's move fast back to the Marsha's house again uh, because we we have we have to finish this up by the end of this episode. Uh, Evelyn's blowing smoke rings. Some soft jazz is playing. James comes back. She says, you shouldn't have. She says, I did it all for the money. They say they like how each other tastes. And then Malcolm comes in and knocks James out. Uh, and we finally get to the heart of the matter. Malcolm says, you're going to say he came back to kill you. You were ready. You shot James until he was dead. And then Malcolm kisses (laughs) her.
0: And yeah, and, and this is that fo- this is that forced, uh, you know, threatening, scary vibe that they're trying to give to Malcolm, which is, you know, like the character of Malcolm has been nothing but a device to move story along at every point. Uh, and it's just really kind of it's 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 shaky and and, you know, borderline I mean, I know Twin Peaks is a soap opera and embraces everything <laughs> soap soap opera, opera operatic about television, but this is a little too far down the Falcon Crest side of things for me.
2: Yeah. Now the whole the whole scene again was you know James Marshall coming in. It it, it just seemed over the top. It just um, too melodramatic. Yeah. It, it, you know it was heightened to the point of being, um, you know, it just it, it didn't you didn't buy it. Yeah. So I, well, I, I somehow
1: we had to get Donna here. Somehow we <laughs> had to get James back into the Marsh's house so we could have the final scene. Right. Uh, it, right. It just seems like they're pulling out all the stops. Like, forget it. Let's just brute force get them to that final scene that we can have later
0: but, on. But what's also funny is that, like, all of a sudden, James perks up. Like that's the thing like this is way too melodramatic-y, but James all of a sudden is no longer mopey. He's energetic. No, yeah, yeah, no no, no right. longer no longer, you know, uh, cr- uh crestfallen or, or you know like oh, and as emo as he was in previous episodes, he's like driven and animated and aggressive. And I was like this is not the James we've seen this entire season. You know, there's not a single pout. So uh at, at least it had that going for it, you know, no pouting.
1: Back to the Great Northern, where we are going to wrap up the Civil War plot line. Oh. There are drums. There's grass. There's Audrey dressed up as Scarlett McLean in period costume. Uh, there's Ben as General Lee. Jerry as William McLean. Bobby blowing the horde. And, of course, Dr. Jacoby as Ulysses S. Grant come to surrender the North to the South. He really wants to surrender, but Ben wants to talk about the Mexican War, uh, takes his time, (laughs) sets out the terms of the surrender, and finally signs it, collapses, wakes up, and we get our Wizard of Oz moment uh, where he says, where am I? I had the strangest dream, and you were there, and you were there, and it was incredible. And Ben says he feels terrific, and there's a lot of laughing, and he wonders why they're in those clothes, and they laugh hilariously, and it ends like a Scooby-Doo episode. (laughs)
0: Really did. (laughs)
2: Uh, it, it's, it's a hard scene to watch, I think.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I like it. I like
2: it. Uh, I, I, well, you know, I, I hadn't seen it in so long and I, I, I recall what Richard Beamer said when we interviewed him about how he didn't understand how all of a sudden they had all these elaborate costumes just out of nowhere. (laughs) You see it also just in the, in the great Northern staff with all their drums in the earlier, uh, part and, 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 uh, it, it does see he, I think Richard Beamer said it was like the prop department took over and the costume department took over and it really, it, I, it took me out a little, I was watching it again, seeing uh, how far the, they went with this. Uh, yeah. it, it, it seems so television and if that, if that's an insult, but I'm, I'm right there, you know, television is a great thing, but it seemed just so, uh, of you know, least common denominator. Yeah. So that, that well, for I- me.
0: But I kind of, I, for me, I kind of like the fact that every time we went to it, it ratcheted up a notch to the point where this they have built like an entire background and you know and and Jerry's mm-hmm. into it now playing his harmonica and all it, stuff like that. Like they, they there's ob- clearly lighting and rigging going on because they have the the Confederate yeah, flag yeah. drop at one point. Like I like right. the idea that even though we never see Ben leave his office, and you get the idea that he's pulling a Howard Hughes and you know holding himself up in his office, and you know it starts with these toys and then becomes this elaborate thing i don't know where this stuff came from but i don't care like just because it's so absurd you know like so I, I don't know yeah but but again at the same time how this relates to anything going on is a mystery to me
2: uh, obviously we all know and you've probably talked about it in previous podcasts that the civil war was uh you know this whole this whole subplot came about because the civil war documentary on pbs had aired at the time they were about to write these episodes and everyone was sort of inspired by this wonderful Burns documentary. So that's how that plot got into Twin Peaks, which really uh, it just isn't something that seems that would naturally fit into the narrative, but that's where it came from. Um, (laughs) But two other things one I've noticed before, one i never noticed before. Um, uh, So in the scene and in earlier scenes we see Bobby really kind of hitting on Audrey. And I don't know what the writers were thinking was going to happen there, uh, what Bobby... He thought was going to happen there, but he really is going after Audrey. She has wants nothing to do with him. But um, were they thinking they might develop that? I don't. I don't know why even include it. So, uh, so that there's that, and we can talk about, about that. And then the last thing and I never noticed this before was how hard it seemed to me that uh, Benjamin Horn hit his head when he collapsed. He sort of bangs <laughs> his head on the floor, and it. It. it two things. Uh, one was that. Maybe that's what really caused him to come out of it. Less the the the, uh-huh. you know, the psychological change <laughs> that uh, Jacoby's trying to employ, more of just sort of getting banged on the head and saying what what's going on. And then, of course, it recalls or foreshadows the hit on the head that Benjamin Horn is going to have. Uh, mm-hmm. at, at least for me, it really reminded me of that in the last episode where he's really going to hit his head. So, all I wanted to just throw all those those observations in there because I thought they were that a lot of that was interesting when you think about the series as a whole. Yeah.
0: Well, yeah, it's, it seems like going back to the Bobby thing, like we had a couple episodes from the moment that Bobby went to go get the job from Benjamin Horn, they veered it into, okay, we're going to pair him up with Audrey. Um, but then like what threw me off was earlier in this episode, you've got him with Shelly in the sheriff station and, you know, saying we're together, we've been together, we're going to be together. And so, you know, you get the sense that this is, you know, th- that they kind of forgot that, that, <laughs> that they were doing that. And then now Bobby's just here to play the bugle, you know, (laughs)
1: This always just felt like a bit of a deep, a, a deeper characterization of Bobby, which is he was Laura's girlfriend and was moving on to Shelly. He's the kind of guy that's always trying to move on to the next girl. And in this case, he's with Shelly. That's boring, with Leo around. And so he was trying to move on to Audrey. And Audrey very consistently turns him down. Like, she never encourages him. So I always felt that was just Bobby being Bobby. Like, he's always looking to move on to the next girl. And this one one is not right. allowing him to do that when he's in the sheriff's department he's just playing the good like well this is what I have to say also, I bet, I, I bet they got the costumes from the department store because, you know, they had to have a Halloween. <laughs>
0: right? well, yeah. you know
2: that, that, That's a good point. I never thought about that. That that makes sense. Um, I, I agree with all, all what you said about Bobby. I think that's a good. Those are good points. I think uh, a little more attention is paid to the Bobby character in episodes to come. And he becomes a little bit of a deeper character in his relationship with uh, Shelly. I know you'll talk about that later on in other episodes. Um, and I like that what they do with Bobby. And I think it fits in really well with the way major Briggs spoke with Bobby in the, in the premiere of the second season. I think there's yeah. a lot up to Bobby, there's a richness to Bobby and a dependability to Bobby that um, gets touched on when they want to do it, when they do, they do it well, but then they forget it sometimes. And he's just back, back to, you know, the high school jock hitting on the girls.
1: All right, uh, back to Wyndham Earl's cabin, uh, where he's putting on a fake mustache and disguise and shocking Leo into writing better, uh, which doesn't really appear to work. I, I couldn't tell that the writing got that much better, uh, but he <laughs> he seems to be pleased, so he gives uh, Leo a bite of a cookie. Uh, Leo says Wyndham's name because he's starting to bond with his master now, and the whole thing is whatever Leo's writing and pictures of Audrey, Shelley, and Donna... Wyndham says, which one shall be my queen? And then rips up some of the paper that Leo was working on, stuffs it in an envelope, and Leo says no. But that doesn't matter.
0: So give it, giving a little more air of a threat of from Wyndham Earl that now he's not just coming after Cooper, but coming after these three women that I wonder how Wyndham Earl knows they even exist. Because <laughs> he's a
2: genius. Come on. Yeah, he's he's an evil genius.
0: Yeah. And I clearly
2: guess. setting up now the plot lines that are gonna, gonna continue yeah. into the next
0: episodes. Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. I the mean Audrey he would her. know. She's prominent, right? Uh Donna was probably he got some exposure as being Laura's best friend, uh and, 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 and Laura's murder, getting some publicity. How we would know Shelley, I have no idea.
0: Well, Leo's 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 wife. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Shelly? Yeah. Yeah. One quick
2: point about this scene, just real fast. I love that one of the one of the highlights really for me for this whole episode is Windham Earl looking in the fractured mirror. Mm-hmm. I think it says a whole bunch. Uh, it just says a whole bunch about that character. I think that was Diane Keaton's choice to do that.
0: Yeah, that was that was a, gr- a great great touch. And and I like that. You know, like we're finally getting to Windham Earl and we're finally getting more sense of him. And you know, and and this is what's going to take us through the rest of the uh, the se- season. So it's good.
1: But we have one more plot to wrap up. Uh, so we head back to Evelyn Marsh's. Malcolm is wiping fingerprints from a gun to prep it for Evelyn. Uh, he's he's ready to execute the shot to the head and the whole story when Donna runs in yelling no, screaming and begging Evelyn. Uh Malcolm at this point has handed Evelyn the gun. She starts to back out of the room. Malcolm comes towards her and she shoots him point blank. They fall together to the carpet. Uh, There's an audio effect of screaming as Malcolm falls. Evelyn starts saying the story that Malcolm was feeding her earlier that she shot him de- until he was dead because he came back and basically flips the story from being about James murdering Jeffrey to Malcolm murdering Jeffrey, and that's why she shot Malcolm.
0: All very convenient. Yes, <laughs> just, <laughs> it works out perfectly. Yeah, it really, it really just—it's a neat little bow. which is like, and finally, right. we can move on from this. <laughs> and what have we learned? Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know. Um,
0: not not I kind, much. I—I <laughs> I feel like.
1: Uh, Malcolm represents this plot line in the scene and Evelyn thankfully put it out of its misery.
2: Good, good point. I like that. <laughs>
1: Thanks. Uh, all right, let's finish up with a, uh, waterfall shot. Then back to the great Northern Cooper, walking through the lobby, looking at a picture of Carolyn, uh, and we see Wyndham in his disguise that we were introduced earlier, walk out of the elevator, passing right by Cooper. Cooper doesn't notice. Uh, goes to the front desk and leaves a message for Audrey Horn at reception. And there's a nice little moment when he's looking at the postcards and goes, ooh, owls. Uh, Cooper, back up in his room, finds a mask, a face mask in his bed. Uh, When Cooper moves the mask, a recording of Earl plays, talking about Carolyn's beauty, mentioning Pittsburgh again. And then we have a shot through the mask, through the eyes, looking out at Cooper as Earl says, it's your move.
0: And so this is where this is where the creepy comes in. Right. This is. And so as as in terms of a swan song and ending for Diane Keaton, I think it's very strong.
2: Yeah. That last shot of the eyes through the eyes is rather nice. And um, and, you know, it's it's enough of a hook to keep us wondering what's going to happen in the next episode. Because that's what they want to do. And uh, yeah, yeah, a good last scene.
1: Yeah, and I like the little touch of of owls. Owls always being, you know, related to the evil in Twin Peaks, yeah. and of course, uh, you know, this is a comedic use of that that symbolism but it's fun yeah <laughs> all right uh well let's move on and tell diane uh what we've noted uh ron do you want to start
0: yeah so my, my observations for this episode was that in the in the death knell scene when uh evelyn and malcolm are wrestling and 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 the the final gunshot happens it moves to a weird kind of uh different frame rate And, you know, kind of gets a very dramatic kind of thing. And it plays with audio and it crunches the screams and the audio with an effect that was similar to the effect used when Bob was in scenes.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: And I wonder if that's if there's some, trying to tie this violence back. Is Bob there watching? Is Bob present somehow? Or is that the only reason that we had this plotline? Or, or yeah, or is it just that they're like, well, we could do this cool sound effect. Like, yeah, let's do that. I don't know. Maybe yeah. maybe John knows why they did that, but I don't know.
2: <laughs> I, I I think it was. I, I think it was a way to try to take what really wasn't working very well in terms of you buying this this threat, yeah. uh, using that effect. That effect it works, and certainly we, we. I thought of Bob too because I remember how they use it with Bob, and it it does give you that feel that this is this is you know very dire. You know, he he is a real threat, uh, or at least it's supposed to. And yeah. I think that was the the effort there was to try to make him more dangerous and threatening and evil then he he real then we've we've seen him
0: Yep, agreed
2: i like the
1: uh the part where bobby calls leo leo stein uh kind of <laughs> calling out the frankenstein's monster aspect of leo that we saw in previous episodes
0: oh <laughs> uh, yeah that was good i didn't i didn't actually know, catch that until i saw you noted that and i remembered it i was like oh nice that was good <laughs>
1: Uh, and then John, do you have any other, uh, any other quirky notes or any added uh, thoughts about this episode?
2: Uh, yeah, you know, and I've, I've given you quite a few a as lot, we've gone yeah. through the episode. Yeah. Thank you for those. Uh, uh, uh well, I, I, hope they were uh, interesting and helpful. I, I, I hadn't seen the episode in a long time. Uh, I came at it with, uh, you know, you know, com- coming at it by itself. So I didn't, ha- I hadn't watched the episodes before it. Um, uh, one thing I, I kind of thought was interesting was there seemed to be – and maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it. I tend to do that. I tend to maybe give the cre- the director uh, you know, some more credit than maybe is due. But uh, uh, what I noticed is that Diane Keaton really, really liked to confine the the characters within frames. You see it a lot throughout. Mm-hmm. You see the characters kind of stuck within uh, – they're close up. But they're, they're framed within the frame of the TV. They're framed within the, the door. So they're enclosed and you see it with uh, Cooper and uh, Pete when the door is swinging, you know, in that one scene. But you see them through that window. Um, You see uh, Norma and Shelley kind of confined under Mm -hmm. the counter. And I don't know if it was deliberate or if it was just Diane Keaton saying this will be fun. Uh, But if it was deliberate, it worked for me. I came away with seeing the characters being trapped. They're being they're stuck. They're, they're they're not able to break out. And um, if she meant it, it worked for me. If she didn't, that's how I'm reading it. It worked yeah. for me. Yep. So, so I like that a lot about the episode. That she was trying to, uh, to bring that to it.
1: Yeah. You know. Now that you mention it, I, I I it happened in Wally's too with with James and Donna. They're they're framed in a box yeah. over there
0: on the side of the
1: uh, of the bar as well.
0: That's right. That's right. Exactly. Yeah, and there, there was there was also the shot of uh, Cooper and Pete when Pete came uh, came home with the dry cleaning when Cooper stole the mm-hmm. the Vicuda thing. Yeah. That was all. It was a horizontal tracking shot that was like set back. Like it was noticeably different than the visual language of Twin Peaks up to that point.
2: Yeah, and she's keeping them. She's keeping them locked. Their faces, or you know, their bodies sometimes locked within a frame within the you know the frame of, of course the the picture, uh, the TV, and so they're they're. They're characters who are stuck. I think yeah. it works. It conveys that.
1: Definitely. Yeah. All right, folks. Uh, well, if you have thoughts, we're always happy to hear them. You can email us feedback at damnfinepodcast dot com, or of course, comment on the episode directly at damfinepodcast.com dot com as well. Uh, John, it was a pleasure getting to benefit from your years of watching the show uh, and getting to chat with you. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, it was my pleasure. I really I love talking about Twin Peaks, and uh, even if I'm talking about it negatively, I still appreciate the greatness of that show. So uh, I don't mean to come across too hard on on the episode, but um, uh, I did I did like it a lot. I love Twin Peaks. We talk about well, it on and on and on.
1: It's certainly not the worst of the Twin Peaks episodes, in my opinion. Not and, by
2: uh, by a long shot. Exactly. Yeah,
1: and and it's the it's those those down moments that make the good moments shine even brighter. I think. Agreed uh hey don't forget uh that you can find john's book uh the essential wrapped in plastic pathways to twin peaks wherever fine books are sold anything else to tell folks about where to follow you and find out what you're up to
2: sure and in fact i do have a new project that some people may be aware of uh restarted a a magazine Uh, it's called the blue rose and i'm doing that with scott ryan from the red room podcast and so we're kind of trying to uh, rekindle the spirit of plastic. Uh, the first issue is out, and you can go, you can get that el- electronically, so you can get it, you know, right down to your iPad and look at it. There are a few hard copies also available, so uh, that's something I'll be writing about Twin Peaks again there. Um, and uh, you can follow me on Twitter at thorne. That's T H O R N E W I P. Uh, and I've got a blog that I occasionally uh, do, which is called uh, Above the Convenience Store or just above the, uh, above the store.blogspot.com. Uh, another way you can maybe see a few, uh, a few of my thoughts about Twin Peaks.
1: Yeah, it was cool that there were blue roses in that Entertainment Weekly uh, shoot. Yes, uh, so that ties yes, in. That was that nice. Was very
2: cool. Yeah, yeah, that was really nice. I like that.
1: Very, very cool. Well, I'm glad there's a spiritual successor to Wrapped in Plastic uh, for our return to Twin Peaks. That's great.
2: Thank you. Folks, yeah. Don't,
1: yeah, Don't forget, you can support us at Patreon, patreoncom slash podcast. We thank everybody who's supporting the show there, helping defray the costs of the show. You can follow us on Twitter at Damfinecast and on Facebook, Facebook.com/slash/DamnFinePodcast. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for season two, episode sixteen, or episode twenty-three, or what it's actually called, episode twenty-four. If you count the pilot, the condemned woman is what they call it in Germany, and we'll talk about it next time. I'm Tom, and I'm Ron.